Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thanks to 99designs for sponsoring this episode. If you're looking to start a business, a website, or something on the side, don't let ugly graphics hold you back. Run a contest on 99designs and get dozens of great designs to choose from in just seven days. Visit 99designs.com slash smart and get a power pack of services worth $99 for free. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to Hello, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris and John here bringing you another great episode. This week, we speak with Karan Girotra. Karan is the author of the new book, The Risk-Driven Business Model, Four Questions That Will Define Your Company. And I know when you hear things like business model, and we're going to talk about business model innovation, sometimes you can tune out and turn off you never know which way it's going to go, if it's going to get too heady or too technical. But here's the cool thing I like about this episode. Instead of talking about really just in the weeds business model innovation, we look at business models as, as simply a system in which we accomplish things in the world. So you as an individual, how do you do things? What systems do you use? What's the task look like? As well as we go into case studies on awesome companies such as Uber and Tesla and how they manage to really up the game when it comes to the business model as opposed to simply the product or service. We also dive into some great stuff about education, what's going on with the education today, what's the future of it, because Quran is ranked one of the top professors in the MBA program at INSEAD. 
which is the largest global MBA program in the world. So he's got a really good sense of what's going on. And given we talk about business model innovation and the fact that education really lags when it comes to innovation, he's got a very unique take on it. I think you'll enjoy it. Karan earned a doctorate from the Wharton School for his examination of innovation processes and the early stage startups. He then took some time off from his doctoral work to help start up TerraPass, which is a profitable firm that has helped individuals and businesses reduce over a billion pounds of carbon dioxide. As I mentioned, Karan is now the Professor of Technology and Operations Management at INSEAD, a global business university. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a comment, or check us out at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter where we can keep in touch and you will get some insight on what we're learning as I send it out. Here it is, Karan Garotra. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And looking forward to kind of diving into a number of different things regarding business and entrepreneurship. I know you're a professor of technology and operations management at Inseed, which I was actually unfamiliar with that university until I found out it's the world's largest graduate business school. Indeed, indeed. So Inseed is, I think two parts of what you said are, are very important. First, we are the amongst the largest MBA programs in the world. And I think the second thing you said, the world's largest, I think that is very important too, because as a school, we are really a truly an international school. Hmm. Most of the big business schools, be it a Harvard, a Wharton, um, I was at Wharton before I, before I went to INSEAD, and, and those schools are great schools, but they are uh, still a majority of the class is, um, is American, or um, certainly a vast majority of them are looking to build careers in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Now, NCR is truly a global school. No, in one nationality is more than 10% of the classroom. Oh, wow. And, and um, so this idea of making a truly international school came to a group of folks about, about 70 years back. And since then, um, uh, we've grown and established a reputation as uh, uh, amongst the top five, six schools in the world, and certainly the, the best one outside the, outside the U.S., so our classroom provides a very interesting um, combination of folks from a lot of different countries who also intend to go back to their countries to work. Uh, and, and particularly, in, in, uh, we get a lot of people um, that you sometimes don't see in a, in a U.S. program. So that, that can be quite, um, quite a fun um, way to, I think, particularly given how business is today. Yeah, that, given, that's a very yeah. Good group. yeah, given the global nature of everything, I can imagine how helpful that would be and I'm also wondering, from the unique perspective of a global university, how do you personally feel and, and see the uh, growth or, I guess, innovation, if we want to talk about innovating business models, of education? So you have your online, you have your MOOCs, you have your standard universities, and now something like INSEAD, which is a you know global Thing, uh, where do you see education going and how do you feel about the, the current state of it? Uh, no, that's a great, great question. Something uh, uh, we both professionally for our jobs and, and also as researchers of innovation uh, in our own industry, we've been thinking a fair bit about. So I think first, uh, just to get the context of the education industry right, this is education and the big business model of education hasn't changed much for uh, more than a couple of hundred years. In fact, some institutions uh, precede the the Republic, the U.S. Uh, 
the state in many ways. Uh, so, uh, and then I always like saying education is um, moves is very slow to reform. Perhaps the only industry or institution which is slower to reform than education has to do with the Catholic Church or church or generally speaking organized religion. Almost everything else uh, reforms much faster. So this is an industry which hasn't changed for almost um, uh, two three hundred years. Um, and and globally has slightly different business models, but generally it is the model of research and teaching put together or at the top end. In the elite institutions, it is uh, uh, institutions use their resources, a lot of it made from alumni donations, some from um, educational fees uh, to really support, uh, perhaps the majority of their resources go to support research and some go back into providing education and outreach. Now, I think this model is being challenged on on multiple counts. First, I think while this kind of very heavy research expense, so if a university brings in $100, probably 60, 70 of that goes into funding research. And only a small fraction or a smaller fraction goes to um, funding their so-called core activity education. So this kind of model is coming under uh, threats from a few different places. First, I think from the social mission point of view, access Increasingly, access to top quality education is becoming unaffordable, particularly we see that in the U.S. and, and across the world. Um, so getting, getting everyone to be able to afford a solid degree is, is not particularly with the decrease in, uh, in state support to, to education in most of the developed world. It is becoming, um, so that, that, that is one challenge, a challenge of access. And the second challenge is from an individual point of view, it is not clear that they're always getting the best deal by going to um, going to a university, a four-year program, uh, paying a, a high fees. A lot of it, which goes to subsidizing research. So that is uh, so from both things of getting access and to delivering value to our main constituents, uh, students. Where perhaps um, efficiency of that is is being questioned. So that is the challenge. I think MOOCs or or online delivery is a great uh, tool for us to meet both of these missions to increase access. So a MOOC uh, at a much lower cost. Uh, some of my colleagues uh, at the Wharton School did looked at these numbers more carefully than I, and uh, they found that about uh, the cost of producing an online course, a very high quality online course, is about $50,000. And that can reach over a space of two, three, four years, almost 100,000 people. Now, that, that is a far uh, cheaper uh, model of delivering a certain level of education to a much larger group than elite universities can. So that, that, that in one way, one way presents an opportunity for us to decrease the costs of, of reaching a lot of people. Uh, and, and I want to add one thing, that even though it can help us reach newer populations, it doesn't particularly change what we do with our existing populations which is a small group of elite students who, who come to our MBA programs or increasingly to how we work directly with companies. So I think in those modes, on those markets, technology is more an enabler for what we do, just making it better. And, and it can also help us open newer uh, markets. So that's, that's how I see things. An industry which hasn't changed for years is facing pressures of access, delivering value, and MOOCs is just one tool to help us do it and uh, help us both reach, uh, increase access, improve the value and improve the efficiency of what we do already. And, and I think as a whole, we probably need more innovations in how we do things to yeah. make it happen. To me, MOOCs is, is one new technology format 
but I hope uh, uh, we'll learn to leverage more uh, asynchronous video formats and, and formats like this one podcast better in uh, in trying to make traditional education use them. Yeah, I mean, and given, it's really interesting, I didn't plan on talking about this, but given that your focus a lot and your expertise expertise is in business model innovation, and as you mentioned, it's pretty much the least innovative industry. And oftentimes we talk about it on the podcast, we get frustrated because I feel like the reason for the lack of innovation is the previously lack of competition and also the interests of those currently in the education system to not make change. So whereas in uh, a lot of corporations or whatnot, if you don't change, you die and you, you go out of business, it just isn't the case in universities and hasn't been, which is kind of frustrating, you know? Right. No. So uh, I agree with you uh, mostly. It has been an industry where uh, it's not that it's protected, but by and large, I think uh, education is a product for which people really care about the brand. And it takes 50, 60, 70 years to create a new brand or a new Mm -hmm. elite institution. So it's a pretty long-term prospect for any new players to come in. Having said that, I think that is probably true for, um, it probably, this was probably true for 50% of the educational institutions that it will be very hard for a new player to catch up with their brand. I think today it's true only for the top 5%. Because I think um, increasingly, as I said earlier, the if the customer or our, or our students are not seeing the full value of, uh, of what we are offering, there are uh, more and more opportunities available today. Partly due to newer formats, also not just, uh, not just uh, online formats, but also for-profit uh, institutions. Also, I think because of um, global challenges, so the hidden, um, uh, the one thing that sometimes folks don't understand fully about U.S. education and certainly U.S. higher education is that it's really one of America's greatest exports. So in, in top, top schools, it has been a lot of students coming from abroad and they bring in um, not just talent, but also economic opportunity in the, in the places where the universities run. And, and we can see many cities where education is the, is the big activity, be it Boston uh, other parts of the um, on the east coast so it's a, one of the big exports and and another competition not just technology is other international uh, locations so uh, many many uh, institutions are coming up in asia so that's um, that's i think the one challenge that sometimes um, education administrators in the in the us don't fully appreciate is that uh, a lot of the quality of people they're getting have been have been global and increasingly, there are more local hubs in each of these regions. China is investing deeply in, in higher education. Singapore really wants to become a hub in that. The Middle East uh, in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, Doha, Qatar, and many different places, they're trying to set up educational hubs. To be sure, most of these places have some way to go before they catch up. But I think the competition is on the horizon. So, And, and you do see it in, uh, in maybe the top 10 schools top uh, in the MBA programs probably in the top 15, 20 programs have been insulated with this for now. But uh, any smaller, more regional program is facing stiff competition from uh, international locations and online formats. So I think we're, uh, that is about to change. So I think the sure. frustration is, uh, is now uh, is changing uh, faster than most people, even within universities, uh, understand it. Absolutely, yeah, and and I uh, I agree, and I'm I'm glad that we kind of got into this topic, even though I didn't plan it. And you know, I, I read that you were 
awarded or ranked, I'm not sure how it works, but the best professor in the MBA program there, which congratulations on that. And I was wondering, I always like to know when I talk to excellent professors such as yourself, what makes or what do you believe makes a, a great professor? So first, thank you. Thanks for the, um, the INSEAD as a school. I think we focus a lot on teaching uh, and particularly because, like we said, we have a multicultural uh, environment. So it uh, presents both an opportunity and a challenge, an opportunity to uh, really leverage from each other's learnings, uh, but also a challenge because um, different people might come with very different contextual uh, thinking, very different social norms. So sometimes it can be challenging. In terms of, I think, what, what helps a professor, even, even I think in our MBA programs, we've, uh, what I've observed is I've been doing this about 10 years now. And, and when I started, I think we had much more attention from our uh, students. And now, like everyone, people are juggling many things. There are many um, other formats of getting information. So uh, we need to, I think, make our material adapt to the tastes and adapt to the consumption patterns of our, of our students. So I think that is, is, is one important element. Uh, for instance, about 50 years back, the case format was, um, was the most popular format for, um, uh, for um, business education. You really brought a story and you discussed that. For sure, it had value, but, um, and it uh, continues to have value. Uh, but it was designed for deep dive into one situation. I think today's uh, market demands more breadth in, in, in a certain fashion. So we've adapted our format. We'll do shorter cases. We'll do video cases. Or with online technology, we don't really need to give a long printed case. By the time the, anybody reads the case, the most of the information in it is, is outdated. Far easier to read the 10 latest articles about that company uh, right now. So number one is I think we have to adapt to the uh, formats of consumption of our uh, students. And, and beyond that, I think um, what I've noticed amongst our students a lot is they come with a lot of energy. They come with a lot of enthusiasm. And, and I see it as the professor's responsibility to really um, take that enthusiasm and transfer it into something uh, constructive. In my own work, uh, I try to encourage people to be um, as innovative, not, not try to become just a bureaucrat or a manager in, a, in an organization, but really go and try to shake up uh, systems, both business and, and in the public sector, be it in a government and, or in a, any institution. I think what we teach in a business school applies not just to a, a business or a company trying to make profits, it applies to any social system, any economic organization. And so, so our goal, I think, is, is, uh, is really trying to take their energy and to uh, leverage it into making it, uh, empowering them to really make a difference. And I think with that perspective, we got to uh, change both the format and also what we're teaching to really make it something that will help them go out there and make a big difference. Uh, that that is my philosophy now. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes uh, uh, not able to pull it off. But but that is that is I think the uh, that is that is the best I I, I can put in in words in um, what I do in the classroom. Sure, no, and I think that's really interesting, and I, I like the way you put it because oftentimes I mean the word innovation has been thrown around so so much recently, and. It's true, but it's just one of those things it's losing. It's it's almost you hear it, okay, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes your brain just goes blank. But what I love and what you said is the reason it's such a powerful word isn't always because we can just learn about Apple computers or whatever. It's because we need people to realize that as an individual, your skills, your experiences – 
can add to an organization, an industry, and then change things. And you don't have to be the CEO. You don't have to be the guy that's reinventing something. You can be an employee in a company, or maybe you work for a startup, where you think of one thing differently, which changes it, and over time really benefits if you want to look at it in the grand scheme of things, the, the human race. So exactly. what, you're saying, well, what you're saying is teaching students to think that way is, exactly. is fairly new but necessary. It's exa- you're exactly right. I'm glad you, you brought it. So I think innovation indeed is a cliche. Everyone uses the word, but, but that doesn't mean it is not uh, what's driving mankind faster and mankind further. So uh, first, I think from a social point of view, we do need technology innovation. We do need uh, business model innovation. All of these things is, is what is really, really improves uh, human life. Um, and just not just uh, in terms of creating wealth for a few people, in terms of making lives for a lot of people uh, better. Now, uh, so I think as a tool, innovation is, is, um, is what has moved the world, world forward. Now, to be sure, I think part of our mission is, to, uh, uh, is also to tell our students that they can use the tool in many ways. There is some innovation which only helps one individual. There's some which can make our society better. But irrespective, I think the tool is, is very powerful. And, and I find uh, too many times that our um, uh, individuals uh, are sometimes narrowly looking at their immediate career goal and not and underestimating the power of each one of us. Each one of us can really, and that's what we teach in, in both in the book and in our classroom. I think what, what is perhaps the most popular thing of what I teach is really just a, a fairly simple set of exercises that, that I ask all my students to do to think of one thing they could change in their current job, one industry they could um, do something differently. doesn't have to be necessarily big. And the big uh, insight there is you got to believe you can do it and then sit and do it for a bit. If they take consciously some time off from not just thinking about how do they manage the next meeting better, but really thinking about how you can do things better. And that, that sounds very simple. But it has a very profound and a powerful impact, uh, I believe, in, uh, in our um, students. Because once you start believing you can do it, once you give it some conscious effort, uh, most of us can do a lot better than we imagined, far better than we think we can. And that, that I think, is really the purpose of writing the book or in the classroom, to really let people um, see that the power that realizes in each one of our hands to, to really think differently. And particularly in the book, in my teaching, I don't talk about technology differently because, again, that needs a lot of perhaps um, uh, contextual knowledge. But but thinking of a business model differently is simply learning how to do things differently. And that is, I think, a game each one of us can play. Yeah. That, I think, is the power of what we, what, what we try to do in the classroom. Yeah, in the book, The Risk-Driven Business Model, Four Questions That Will Define Your Company, it's really interesting. Actually, I like the way you just talked about it because... One of the things about business books, we talk to a, a great deal of entrepreneurs and just business minds. Uh, they tend to get pretty similar and you hear a lot of the same stuff. But when I, when I looked into yours, what I loved about it is when you talk about business models, and it's not even something I'm extremely passionate about, but you're really talking about the, the way anybody, whether it be an individual or an organization, which is just a group of individuals, tackle different issues, problems, solve problems, the way they go about it. And innovating on that is just innovating problem solving in my mind, which right. can can be taken in so many different places. So I love that. And I would like to hear your take on what a business model is. So a business model, simply put, is, is how we do things. Uh, 
it's it's just uh, so a company has um, produces certain products uses some resources to produce those products and reaches out to some um, customers. So there's the product, there's the input, there's the output, there's the market. But I think business model is, is what ties it all together. How do you take those inputs, make them into outputs, and really earn revenues, um, spend costs, and in the process you have some risk exposures. And our, our um, kind of idea there is very simply that you can improve how you do things and this sounds simple, but once we apply it, 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 I think, can be powerful if applied correctly. That how do we improve doing things? And we identify two dimensions. One, just by doing things in a fashion that you can use the best information that is available to make decisions. And the second one, design our systems. So when people are doing things, their incentives to do the right thing are in place. Now, if we think about um, uh, a lot of systems, not just business systems, these two problems, these two things impede a lot of uh, performance of systems. In particular, um, folks not having the right incentives to do the right thing. Um, we see this in sector after sector. If we look in uh, healthcare, particularly in U.S. healthcare, the incentives of a lot of um, uh, players in this in this uh, system are not always the same as the incentives of the uh, of the patients. Sometimes the caregivers' incentives and the patients' incentives might might not be fully aligned and and that leads to inefficiencies high cost and a lot of the problems that we that we see now so principally for us business models is how you do things and then we say there are uh, in the way you can do things better is is business model innovation and and roughly speaking there are two ways to get to it by designing systems where people have the right objectives and are incentivized to do the right thing and giving them the information to make the right decisions that's so interesting the incentives part, I really love. So on the, I, I don't want to say on the side, because I guess I do the podcast on the side, but my main career is I work for a small nonprofit and we're trying to change the food industry and and more in, in a, in a I guess, a smaller way, trying to change food eaten outside of the home because a restaurant's incentives are different from the consumer incentives, right? Exactly right. They, this is something actually I've been trying to do some research also on. Oh, wow. Exactly right. So I think two industries where the current business model provides fairly bad incentives to the provider are healthcare and food. In food, the restaurant's incentive is to, uh, your incentive is to live longer, have a healthy life. And, and perhaps not not just what the food gives you today, but but its cost or, or impact on you over a 10-year uh, framework. Whereas uh, the restaurant's uh, objective is to cut costs and get you something which appears good right now, perhaps gets you to come back in. But really the long-term quality impact of that is is not something which goes into their bottom line. So it does present, present a huge challenge in terms of, uh, and, and you're very right, that it is the incentive issue which drives a lot of our bad eating uh, um, outside the home, particularly. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Let's uh, we'll definitely talk about that offline, just because I'd I'd love to learn a little bit more about that, especially as it relates to the organization I work for. But as you mentioned, the incentive aspect is so interesting that I wonder how do you so take something like healthcare, where it's the incentives are are so misaligned and it's of dire consequence, how do you innovate around that? How do you realign those incentives? Right. No, that's a great question. There are uh, some rays of hope in, in how people are doing it. Economic theory, though, on these things is fairly fairly clear, if I may say. 
it's the politics of which which is not fully clear economic theory on these things has as a standard word for these you do vertical integration now what does vertical integration mean in the context of healthcare it really means you you bring in the provider uh, rather than having all these separate entities in the process of delivering healthcare the pharmaceutical companies the healthcare providers the insurance companies the patient the uh, generally the patient's employer who pays for the healthcare uh, to the insurance company rather than having all these people if we really did it in house and and some companies have tried doing it i think quad graphics um, uh, a company which works in the tech space really has rather than buying its employees uh, health insurance it has it has brought in some doctors in in house for providing at least basic medical care a little dispensary in the company that you might say now those doctors are not compensated on how many procedures they recommend how many patients they see there's no insurance company which is which wants to spend as little as they can no employer so everything is in one one organization as the employer employees some doctors on 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 site directly and that reduces some misalignment so everybody's aligned in the same goal of the company wants patients to come in as often to work as possible the patients want to remain healthy and and the um, doctors who work for the uh, company are aligned to do that too wow. so that has that is slightly better incentives uh, on a more national level i think um, uh, single payer healthcare systems avoid uh, incentive conflicts see all these incentive conflicts arise when we split decisions amongst a lot of different entities each of it has to look at its or its own bottom line and that that i think is is um, uh, creates more and more of the misalignment so economic theory would suggest fairly fairly strongly that a single payer type system uh, either applied at a at a whole country level or a state level or even within an organization and i think it, it is surprising sometimes that in the us while in a in a larger context uh, we haven't moved to that kind of a system uh, in a in a national context but on a corporate context individual companies have moved to onto it much faster than in places which have uh, than in europe and other places so um, i think more more integrated systems where um, there's not so many actors in the process do make things better mm. uh, and and another thing experiments that have worked well globally in healthcare are also more um, sometimes more targeted systems so uh, uh, perhaps a single payer system but but maybe not at the national level but at a smaller uh, level than that like you mentioned just because uh, of bureaucratic and other um, inefficiencies in managing large systems sometimes small is is better sure um, but that is that is i think what what uh, is a is a way that economic theory would recommend and some pioneering organizations and countries are trying to make it happen and now it's time for our awesome sponsors who support smart people podcast as you know we're talking about business model innovation in this episode and one of the poster childs for innovation is our sponsor 99designs. In the old days, you'd have to hire a designer, they'd charge you an astronomical amount of money, you'd get one design, one perspective, and you'd have to choose from that. The more you worked with them and the more you changed things, the more it cost. But not with 99designs. Now you have the world's largest graphic design marketplace right at your fingertips, and you can run a contest which gets them all competing for your business. This means you're going to get dozens of designs from a number of different designers so you can get different perspectives, you can see what might work for you, maybe things you didn't even think of. It's like having an entire agency on your payroll for a fraction of the cost. 
After you start your contest, you can then work with a number of designers and give them feedback to change certain things and really get a design you love. Plus, it's 100% guaranteed. 99designs has been a consistent sponsor of this show, and we hope it's something you guys enjoy. Before the offer is no longer available, go to 99designs.com smart to get a $99 power pack of services for free today. What's up, Smart People Podcast listeners? Today, I want to share with you a free and secure tool called Personal Capital that solves two barriers to growing your wealth. The first barrier is that it's hard to keep track of your stocks, 401k, bank accounts, etc., all on different sites with different usernames and passwords. Secondly, you probably pay someone to manage it, and more than likely, you're paying too much. Personal Capital brings all your accounts and assets on one single screen, on your computer, phone, or tablet with real-time and intuitive graphs. It shows you how much you're overpaying in fees and how to reduce those fees. You'll also get tailored advice on optimizing your investments. So why wait? Signing up takes just a minute and it'll pay big dividends. Personal Capital gives you the clarity and transparency to make better investment decisions right away. To set up your free account, go to personalcapital.com slash smart people. Personal Capital is free and the smart way to grow your money. You must go to personalcapital.com slash smart people for your free account. Well, I love that example you gave about them bringing doctors in-house. And that's what makes your book and just the idea of business model innovation so interesting to, I would imagine, almost anyone, even if you don't want to dive into the weeds, because that's just really cool. It's, outside, you know, as cliche as outside of the box. And then you think about it and go, Man, I'd like to work for that company. So it's definitely something that would help. And I was, as I was reading your book, I was thinking, obviously you answer this question in there, but for our listeners, can you help define those four categories that you discuss? Right. So like you were saying, I think what these categories, before I even tell, say them, these apply broadly to any system, be it a company, be it an industry, or be it even, um, uh, personally, I'm, I'm quite passionate about uh, transportation and particularly urban design issues. So these, these things apply across the board. Now, what are these things? So we say in every system, we can improve it often by, by trying to ask four questions of the system. The first question is, what does this system do? Should it do more? Should it do less? Many times, just because of historical reasons, there's one entity trying to do way too many things. Or it is uh, sometimes you're doing just one narrow thing, and by doing a second thing, you can become better. So the first, first question to ask is really the scope of activities. And I think as an example, um, Amazon was the everything store, used to do every kind of activity and still does. But it started facing competition from more focused players like uh, Zappos.com, which did only footwear originally, now footwear and some um, other accessories. Or Diapers.com, which not surprisingly used to do only, uh, only uh, childcare consumables. And, and these players became extremely efficient and they started giving Amazon a run for its uh, money. And eventually, Amazon did indeed buy both of these players because they realized they were better than what Amazon was doing. But this is really an example of questioning what should be the scope of activities that a particular organization does. And that's the first question to ask. The next question to ask is, when and when are big decisions made in the business model? Are you really deciding things a lot in advance? Are you deciding them later? And the big um, uh, question there is, often if we postpone our decisions, we actually learn more about what is um, what is relevant, what would be a good and a bad decision. What we see in the business world, social world, is is things have become very uncertain. Things change a lot. 
So many times, the traditional way of doing doing things is is often too risky because you decide on something and then things change. So many times you need to think of changing when we make decisions to to make them perhaps more responsive to all the changes that are happening around us. So that's that's the second question. Um, the third question is who makes the big decisions? Like we were discussing earlier in healthcare, many times if it's your insurance company deciding what you need to be prescribed, just, just their incentives might not be right, or they might not have the right information to make that decision. If a doctor is compensated in uh, in a certain way, who, who is making certain decisions might be might be questionable. So it's often fairly powerful to examine who is doing things and trying to change that. And there are, in the book, we provide systematic ways to change each of these things, what, when, who, that we've discussed already. And the fourth one is really trying to change why people do things as they do them. And, and that comes to the core of incentives. Why does a doctor overprescribe uh, medicines or overprescribe uh, tests? Might have to do with his incentives of around insurance, around his compensation scheme, Maybe he has a commission from the test uh, site, which, believe it or not, is more popular than, than most folks realize. So a lot of that uh, is really about changing why people make the uh, do things the way they do. The example we were discussing of vertical integration, if you stop paying doctors and procedures and instead give them a fixed salary, they are more likely to not over-prescribe uh, procedures. So really, um, why people do things as they do. Taken together, if we ask these four questions of whatever organization we are in, whatever business we are in, what, what is the scope of activities? When are the big decisions made? Who makes the biggest decisions? Is it the right person to make it or not? And why is making the decisions as they are? Uh, and that really is the start of a process of improving the business model by understanding what, what might be better uh, if one of these four uh, answers to these questions is changed. Yeah, and I love it because as I mentioned I work at a small organization in, and I'm in a role where I can make single-handedly decisions that will completely alter the path of the business. And until I was in this role, I didn't understand the need for this kind of innovation or even at a, at a smaller level, this thought process. The idea of sitting down and maybe taking 30 minutes, an hour, a day, whatever it might be, to think on the way you're going to do one specific thing and the impact it has it's re it's a it's a difficult thing and I'm wondering do you have any recommendations do you talk to students or businesses about how to improve that just the thought process not even making change but how can we think about innovation when we're right. trying to do so no that's a great question and I think part of this is is the motivation for writing the book so the first problem I think we as I think of changing things and innovating I think the first problem people face is um, is just uh, making themselves do it. So it is often because uh, many times people, and there are a few reasons for that. Sometimes uh, you're not convinced you can do it. Other times it is you don't know you need to think about it. Many times it's just plain awareness that you need to be conscious of what you're doing and think of it not just as a way to do things or what we're doing is what we're doing, but really how we could change that. So first, I think thing is awareness and sitting and doing it. That requires a certain discipline. A second problem I often see in, in companies and, and institutions and individuals is that even when they know they need to do it, often uh, we think of innovation, it's easy to say, oh, think about how you'll make the world a better place or how you'll become do your job better. But unless we provide some systematic recipe-like tools, it's very hard to get going because otherwise the recommendation is 
sit in a room, look at the ceiling and hope to make uh, some bright idea might strike. <laughs> Sometimes it does, but more often than not, in, in three minutes, given our uh, distraction opportunities today, you're playing with your phone, you're back to checking email or doing something else. So what we found very useful in the classroom, and that's where the book really came in, was if we converted this sit and look at the ceiling task into a more structured task, sit down and ask who, what are the four big what are the big decisions in your company, ask when are they made, ask who who's making them. That converts what is a creative, divergent, open task into an analytical task. And see the sad thing or good thing or bad thing about our educational systems are. They've made us very good in analytical tasks, but as we grow older, they make us worse and worse in doing these divergent creative tasks. So what, what we try to do in the book and, and in our teaching is really create this very divergent ta task of thinking how to make the world better, how to make your job better into a more analytical task, a more recipe-based task. It's still there's some art to it, there's some creativity to it, so it cannot be fully a recipe, but I think we've moved or we're trying to move a little bit of the needle in terms of making it a little bit more uh, systematic. And I think that uh, can empower everyone to do it. Once Absolutely. you have a recipe, it is, it's a lot easier than uh, just sitting up and, and looking, looking in the roof and, and, and trying to come up with a, with a great, great idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I wanted to move a little bit from the theoretical to the you know, actionable or implemented. You mentioned how you're interested in transportation. And I have to admit, two of my favorite companies by far are Uber and Tesla. Just, and I don't even know why. It's not, I, I just can't figure it out. But there's something about the ease of use and the accuracy of Uber and then the pure genius of Tesla that I love those two companies. So I'd love if, you, if you've done any research or case studies on those two, if you could kind of talk about your findings. Right. No, so both are, uh, I'm, I'm first I share your enthusiasm for both. I'm a very regular uh, and, and uh, enthusiastic Uber customer. And certainly we've written about Tesla in, in a lot of different uh, venues, spoken about them, uh, did some research on electric vehicles also. So uh, first up, I think, applies a little less to Tesla, but more to Uber. These are fundamentally not, uh, Uber particularly, is not really a technology company. The app is, is based on technology, which has been out there for at least five, six, seven years. But what they do is they are looking at the business model of ride shares or ride uh, services and, and are making it so much more frictionless compared to the traditional process of doing things. In effect, the idea is they're bring, creating a platform which really matches, uh, think of it as a, as a much larger taxi hailing market than just, than, and historically this market was you standing on the, on the block. Now it really is everyone who has a phone within that uh, local area and, and also on the other side, every ride provider who has a phone. So I think this is making, using technology to imp uh, improve uh, efficiency and improve information in a market, really letting everyone who needs a ride know about who wants a ride. And that, that is powerful. That's exceptionally powerful in creating a lot of value for customers, individuals, and, and others. Tesla is a more um, story where there's not necessarily path-breaking technology, but certainly uh, very good technology, state-of-the-art, and perhaps slightly better than state-of-the-art technology. But what is very interesting to me about Tesla is to bring that technology to the market. It was not sufficient to just make a great car. This is an industry where the competitors are, uh, are much, much bigger than Tesla even now is. 
and certainly much bigger than when it started out. So Tesla came up with a lot of clever business model quirks to make it happen. In, for instance, not going through the traditional dealership networks, going directly. Uh, they've used, uh, they, they're planning to use switching stations. Now, these are places where you can drive in and they'll swap your battery, which is depleted with a new battery, with a fully charged battery. And that, that basically eliminates the range problem of, a, of an electric car. Because normally they won't go more than a 250 miles in a, in a conventional car. Tesla pushes the boundary a little bit more, 200 miles in a, in a Tesla car. But but that sometimes might not be might not be enough, and certainly consumers have a range anxiety. Uh, we can try to improve the technology, but but we haven't had any huge breakthroughs um, just yet. Uh, but but there's a business model solution to it. What if we just had stations like gas stations, but this time they swap your battery out for uh, for a fully charged battery, and you can be off in in um, Tesla claims you can be off in under a minute, faster than putting <laughs> gas in your tank. Wow. So so I think they've created a lot of interesting business model twists. To, to make it happen. And, and if I may go a little longer, in terms of transportation, if we think of the industry as a whole and study its history, it has been completely shaped, not necessarily by folks who developed new technology, but by folks who created new models around that technology. If we go all the way back to the start of the automobile, the German engineers invented these uh, great, great automobiles, uh, Daimler, Gottlieb, a lot of Karl Benz, a lot of these folks invented great, great uh, machines. Uh, but they remained relative novelty items that the royalty could afford to buy, but really not uh, not even close to uh, mass, uh, mass um, uh, adoption. It's only when Henry Ford, an American, came in, did not really improve the technology. If anything, his cars were uh, behind the curve in technology, but took the German technology or took the, at that time, standard technology and really tried to create a new business model around producing cars, be it mass uh, mass production, assembly line, um, something which might even sound quaint today. But his one of his important pieces was welfare capitalism, paying the customer, paying his employees um, uh, what would amount to I think uh, a, um, uh, it was at that time no Ford employee should make less than five dollars a day, which would be which would impl- amount to more than two hundred dollars in today's uh, dollars. And he said no employee should make much less than that. And remember, the wages were very low at that time. Labor was completely exploited, but he, he took a different turn. And it was this business model which really created this auto industry. So I like saying business models and innovators who think about how to do things differently have moved the world, both, uh, both literally and, and uh, philosophically. And I think uh, that continues to happen with Uber, Tesla. And right now, maybe the challenge is not mass access to cars, but really uh, sustainability of cars, which both these companies are, uh, are contributing to. And, and, and this is not what Henry Ford did, what uh, Uber is doing, is a game that each one of us can play. Because in the end, it really is about changing business models, not about uh, mechanical engineering or something which might, might require a lot of training. It really is about thinking and questioning how we do things that, that gets things to, um, uh, has moved and created uh, transportation and many other uh, industries in the world. Well, and I know I know we're running out of time here, but that brought up one question for me, which was, I think companies are are used to the idea of if they're creating a new service or product, how to innovate, pivot, find what sells and where their margins work and all that. But when it comes to business models, it's, I don't know, it's, 
the mindset I don't think is there. So how do organizations get over the fear of doing their actual business model differently? So for example, take the Ford example of paying your employees this this rate outside, you know, which is higher than everyone else, you're going to get all this pushback. So how do you recommend companies, individuals, organizations, whatever, play around with that, accept failure, pivot on, on this issue? Right. No, that's great. That's a great question. So, uh, and I think business model innovation, first, a lot of the things you said, pivot, experiment, do apply to business model or innovation also. Uh, we don't have to completely innovate and completely change the policies in one go, but we can do them gradually and maybe do a small experiment, a pilot to see if they work or not. To summarize, I think there are two differences between business model innovation and product innovation. One which makes it actually easier and one which makes it a little bit harder, but can be, can be, uh, can be fixed with the right mindset. So the, what makes it harder, harder is because the biggest enemy of business model innovation is within us, is within the organization. And that really is because if you come up with a new technology, if Ford comes up with a new kind of, uh, let's say, engine design, it doesn't really put any, anybody in management out of, uh, out of a job. It really is, okay, we sell a new product and it's great. But on the other hand, if Ford or, or I think IBM is a great example about that, about 10 years back, they decided to stop selling physical products, computers, or, or even higher-end um, uh, computers, but instead sell services and solutions. Now, that is a change of business model. And that, on the other hand, is a change which is going to uh, put some people out of perhaps uh, uh, some skills will get redundant with that. And that, that creates a huge internal uh, uh, constituency against any business model innovation. That's what makes it harder. But it's not, not too bad. I think what we find how organizations should do it is really create a separate skunkworks um, group to really make that happen. So don't try to go in and say, you know what, we're going to change the business model today. It is far better to change it in a gradual way. And, and that actually is related to the one thing about business model innovation, which makes it easier to do than technology innovation. And that is gradualism. You can do it slowly. You can do it one by one. You don't have to do it in one go. If you are designing a new engine, you've got to sink in probably a couple of hundred million, no, probably a couple of billion dollars in before, before you really know if it works or not. On the other hand, with a lot of business model changes, we can do them in isolation in small things. I think anything innovative we do will have risk. And one of the best ways of dealing with that risk is some sort of gradualism. Gradualism is not uh, resistance to change. It is about doing a lot of very crazy experiments but not doing any experiment, not betting the company on any experiment in one go. So let a million flowers bloom of different things and really pick the ones that, that seem better and then, then bet the company as you're learning about them. So I think that is the, uh, is the model I like uh, of, of really making this happen in companies. Yeah, I really, I'm glad that we talked about that because I'm a big fan of small incremental change. I believe that humans are, because we're so risk averse and we tend to have a strong capacity for fear that change is so frightening. But if you do it in small chunks and see what works, it's something that allows you to move forward. So the fact with right. the business model, you're right. I could see it. You can make those small adaptations as opposed to a completely new product. So really interesting stuff that I hadn't thought about. And um, again, thank you so much for being on the show. I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell our listeners um, where they can find you. Do you write often? How they can follow and learn more about what you're doing. Right. So um, thank, thanks for having me. This was a fascinating uh, conversation. 
in terms of reaching me, uh, first, our book is is out there available. It is the risk-driven business model available at uh, online stores and traditional stores, um, uh, easily accessible around the world right now, uh, the risk-driven business model. Beyond that, I am on, on Twitter. Uh, I can be followed on Girotra K. That goes with a G as in George, I-R-O-T as in Tom, R-A-K. Uh, Girotra K. Um, and and uh, I also uh, write a blog, uh, which one can follow through girotra.com. And, uh, and I'm uh, also happy to hear from anyone directly on Twitter, on other channels, about any specific thing they might um, might want to discuss with me. Uh, I think the one good thing about uh, about all the social media is uh, it's very easy to to get in touch with each other and i look forward to hearing from any of our listeners if they have uh, any anything they'd like to discuss more about about these issues that's fantastic and yeah we'll definitely link to your book and your blog your twitter all that right on our website uh, for those that want to carry on this conversation so uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck as you move forward studying these interesting business models. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Have a great day. Too. All right. Bye-bye. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Karan. Again, this is another episode that I did not get to participate in, but had the absolute pleasure of listening to the interview as I edited it. Chris did a fantastic job. I loved, absolutely loved this conversation. If you loved it too, remember that you can pick up Karan's book, The Risk-Driven Business Model, Four Questions That Will Define Your Company on Amazon or at your local bookstore. And remember, if you want to support Smart People Podcast, you can make your Amazon purchases through our link. All you have to do is head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon, and it will send you directly to Amazon with our affiliate link attached to that. If you enjoyed this episode or other episodes, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave us a rating and review there. And follow us at Smart People Pod. I love having conversations with listeners on Twitter. I'm looking forward to those conversations, and I'll see you guys next week.